You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Our double portion of Bahar and Bukhukosai dramatically closes the book of Vayikra, rounding out the Torah's treatment of the holiness of time and space, especially the categories of property and land, and the dire consequences for abusing that land. The first of our parshios, Bahar, begins with two interrelated sets of commands. First, Shemitah, the laws of the sabbatical year. Ki savo el asher ani nosein lachem v'shav shabbat ladonoi. When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall observe a Sabbath rest for Hashem. And second, the laws of Yovel, or the Jubilee year. V'kidashtem es shnas ha-chamishim shana ukrasem dror ba-aretz v'chol yoshvea. Yovel hi tiyem lachem v'shavtem ish el achuzaso v'ish el mishpachto tashuvu. You shall sanctify the 50th year and proclaim freedom throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be the Jubilee year for you. You shall return each man to his ancestral heritage, and you shall return each man to his family. I'd like to focus on the latter phenomena, Yovel, partly because its laws are generally less familiar than the chronologically more frequent Shemitah, and partly for a more private reason. When I was in an elementary school, my yeshiva took us on the proverbial class trip to Philadelphia, the heart of freedom for colonial America. And, as you might guess, we made the obligatory stop at Independence Hall. At this point, I have to mention my dear friend, Rabbi Mayor Salvechik, who keeps on insisting that the Nicolas Cage vehicle, National Treasure, is one of the greatest movies of all time. Apropos of the Liberty Bell Park, of course. And when we finally arrived on Market Street to Independence Hall to get a glimpse of the Liberty Bell with its iconic crack, one of the chaperones on the trip, a middle school Rebbe and Talmud teacher, seemed more excited about the inscription that was on the Liberty Bell than even the crack, and eagerly pointed to the verse from Leviticus. What he actually said was, Boys, boys, look at the Pasuk from Vayikra, that in the King James Version reads, Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Of course, this is the very verse from this week's Parsha, which refers to Yovel, the Jubilee year, with its instructions to the children of Israel to return property to its ancestral owners and free slaves, specifically the Ebed Ivri, the Hebrew bondsman, every 50 years. Now, interestingly, the Liberty Bell really got its name from 19th century abolitionists and not 18th century colonial freedom fighters. But so be it. The Liberty Bell is enshrined in our collective consciousness as a marker of great American freedom and, of course, a hearkening back to the biblical roots of our great nation. But an obvious question arises with regard to Yovel, with regard to the Jubilee year. From an economic point of view, the Jubilee laws of returning property to the original landed and ancestral owners Like the laws of Shemitah, the laws of the sabbatical year, of letting the land lie fallow, are, on the surface at least, counterintuitive, if not downright counterproductive to a flourishing economy. Think about the compromising of private property that's implied or suggested in this law of Yovel of returning the land to the original ancestral owners. Think about the disincentive to a robust market that this law seems to support and include. Why should the land be returned? After all, it was purchased rightfully and legally by the new owner. 
What are we to make of these laws? Do we simply say that they're a vestige of an ancient agricultural society, but have no bearing on today's contemporary economic and cultural world? I think the Torah response would be a resounding no. And here I want to share a deep, poignant insight offered by the great Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Har Etzion in the Gush, in an article entitled Thoughts About Shemitah that was written in the year 5733 or 1972-1973. And here the backdrop is the reality that since the late 19th century and the beginning of a return to Zion, the laws of Shemitah presented a complication to those early settlers, to those agricultural pioneers. What to do with the laws of Shemitah, to the laws of the sabbatical system that required every seventh year the land lying fallow, not cultivating the land, not eating its produce without the proper ritual and religious obligations being honored. Initially, these laws didn't affect such a large population, but as Aliyah followed Aliyah, a halachic mechanism was introduced, known as the heter mechira, the dispensation of sale. That is to say, technically, a sale could be contracted, that the land would be owned by a non-Jew, thereby precluding the need to observe the Shemitah laws on the whole. And this Heter Mechira was endorsed famously by Rav Avram Yitzchak Cohen Cook in the teens and the early 20s of the last century. And Rabbi Lichtenstein, with this background, says the following. The true nature of Shemitah remains a deep secret. The simple fact is that the Shemitah year of 5733 constitutes a halachic tragedy. It is not pleasant to hear this, and even less pleasant to say it. But it is the cold, bitter truth, and there is no escaping its except through deception. And Rabbi Lichtenstein applies this notion of tragedy, this unbearable, unresolvable conflict to the reality of the modern day Shemitah. What remains for us today, he writes, of this enchanting vision, namely the vision of Shemitah in all its glory, with all its democratic and philanthropic and agricultural benefits and virtues? Nothing But a hollow shell, the transition from an agricultural economy to an industrial one, has taken most of the prohibitions of work off the agenda for nearly everyone. For most people, the situation is relatively convenient and also straightforward. They need not circumvent or distort the prohibitions. They are simply lucky enough not to confront them. However, as regards the prohibitions pertaining to consumption and the obligation to treat the produce of the Shemitah year as Kedusha, as holy items... The situation is considerably more serious. What options are available to people who are anxious to observe the Kedushah of Shemitah with careful attention to all the details? They can rely on the legal fiction that, woe to the ears that hear this, that the fields of Eretz Yisrael from Lebanon to Egypt and from the Mediterranean to the Jordan have been sold or leased to non-Jews. What Rev. Lichtenstein is after here is not the legitimacy or the halachic viability of this mechanism of the hetemichira, he wants to understand what happens to Shemitah, what happens to the the values, the halachic worldview that's embodied and contained within the laws of Shemitah. And of course, for an orthodox scholar and pietist, really, of Rabbi Lichtenstein's stature, he would never suggest, God forbid, that we should ignore our halachic obligations, however unpalatable they may seem to us. We understand our total responsibility for the fulfillment even of a mitzvah that seems to have outlived its purpose. The implication is that Shemitah has perhaps outlived its purpose in a modern, 
industrial society. I insist on only one thing, he says, that we should recognize the reality and lament it. That we should recognize this tragedy of the conflict between the needs of a modern society and a modern agriculture and a modern Israeli industry and work for Jews and ownership of Jews with this other value, this value of Shemitah. This, he ends, is our situation today with respect to the agricultural aspect of the Shemitah. In a formal sense, perhaps all is well, but we are not fulfilling the mitzvah of giving the land its Sabbath of complete rest. All of us, those who support and oppose the heter alike, are not so much observing the Shemitah as avoiding its observance. I do not see any way to improve the situation in the foreseeable future, but at least let us feel the pain of it, as Hillel did in his day, referring to the Prusbo enactment. Since we have no choice, we will make use of all the heterim, of all the dispensations, of all the leniencies, and other means of circumvention, and we will bow our heads before the sad reality. But we will not, nay, a thousand times not, make peace with it. We will admit our failure and regret it, and hope that God will provide what is missing. What Rabbi Lichtenstein does for the laws of Shemitah, I'd like, in our own modest way, to suggest for the laws of Yovel, for the laws of the Jubilee year, to give an account of what the power of the landholder, why is it so critical that the land revert to the original ancestral owners? Why not follow a traditional economic system with a purchase of land that would simply be in the possession of the purchaser? Why go back to the original owner? And for this exercise in halachic retrieval, so to speak, I want to mention a forgotten American classic, a book that was published in 1936 with the fetching title, Who Owns America?, a new declaration of independence, picking up our Spirit of Philadelphia theme. Who Owns America was edited by Herbert Agar, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and historian, and Alan Tate, a poet and man of letters associated with the Southern Agrarian Movement. And this volume, Who Owns America? A New Declaration of Independence, in many ways is a sequel to the 1930 work, I'll Take My Stand, a kind of literary political manifesto written by the Southern Agrarians, people like John Crow Ransom, Robert Penn Warren, Donald Davidson, Alan Tate, where a retrieval of the genteelness, the qualities of the South were in full, perhaps overly romanticized form. Edward Shapiro, the editor of the new edition of Who Owns America, actually claims that this is one of the most significant conservative books published in the United States in in the 1930s. And except for perhaps Walter Lippmann's book, The Good Society, the Agar-Tate volume really did the most for the conservative American movement, which in the pre-World War II era was really disparate and, and terribly unorganized. This book collects both Southerners and Northern thinkers. Agar himself was a, a New Yorker. It collects some Europeans, but really only one of the distributist voice, Hilaire Belloc. And what it does, and unfortunately, it is relatively unknown today, except amongst scholars of American history and conservative thought. The book's message of a demographic and political and economic decentralization and the widespread ownership of property continues to resonate among Americans opposed to the growth of corporate farming, the decay of the small town, and the expansion of centralized political and economic authority. During the 1930s, the concerns of European conservatives we know were, were more troubling. Race, religion, class, political legitimacy, they were of li relatively little interest to American conservative thinkers. They focused instead, the Americans that is, on encouraging grassroots democracy, the rule of law, 
economic and political decentralization, individual liberty, and the widespread distribution of property. And I think what we can see here is a value of ownership, a value of the individual who sits under his vine and fig tree, who can cultivate a sense of freedom, which is the drawer, the freedom which the Torah tells us is associated with the Yovel. It's also associated not just with the freedom of the bondsmen going back to their own status of freedom, but the freedom that perhaps only exists with a property owner or a small business owner, someone who can be responsible, can cultivate the yeoman virtues, the bourgeois virtues, and create a community first with his family, his or her family, and then with his own property and mini society in terms of of a business or an enterprise. And I think this value is perhaps the underlying teaching, the hidden kernel in the law of Yovel, of the return to the propertied owners. Because every Jew was given that ancestral piece of land to cultivate, to sow, to reap, to be responsible for. And in the best traditions of the Southern Agrarians and the English distributists and Agar's American amalgam, we can see these virtues and the role they play. Shapiro goes on to say that suburbia became the most significant social phenomena post-World War II because innately we have a desire for that little green, for that park, for, for that little terrace, for that place where we can plant and we can cultivate and we can sow. And I think that is what creates a sense of freedom that the Torah is really teaching us. So yes, we should be proud that Israel is a startup nation, but let's not forget that it also, at its very beginnings, it was a nation of Shemitah and Yovel, a nation of the sabbatical year and the jubilee year, and the return to ownership, to return to responsibilities and virtues of ownership can hold us in good stead even as we live in a modern industrial civilization. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 